Today we are concluding our nine-week series called Experiencing God. We've been looking at what the Apostle Paul has to say about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, especially verses 22 and 23. In fact, go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at it in, in just a second. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And there are nine fruit of the Spirit, and today we come to the last one. And you already know what it is, right? Because we've been reading this for nine weeks. You have it all memorized, right? What's the last fruit of the Spirit? It's self-control. So today we're going to be talking about self-control. Now, interestingly, the Greek word for self-control here especially has to do with sexual self-control. And it's the opposite of sexual immorality, where you just follow your desires. In fact, one of the words in, in this passage in Galatians 5, you know, verses 19 through 21, where it lists the works of the sinful nature, the works of the flesh, where it says sexual immorality, the Greek word there is porneia, where we get our word pornography. And he lists porneia. He talks about sexual impurity, orgies. And, he, and he, then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and he concludes that by referencing self-control. And again, that word self-control in the Greek is especially referring to sexual self-control. So what he's saying here is when you are led by the Spirit, when you're filled with the Spirit and you're walking in the Spirit, you will not follow these kinds of desires. You will have self-control. You will even have sexual self-control. So at first, when I was developing this series and developing this message, I was thinking about making this whole sermon about sexual self-control, because we live in an out-of-control society, don't we? Uh, we? We really need to talk about sexual self-control sometime, but as we got into talking about forgiveness and reconciliation and peacemaking and boundaries, and, and all of that began to just build up and overflow, so today I actually need to talk about crucial conversations. That's what we're going to talk about today, having self-control in crucial conversation. So we're not going to talk about sexual self-control. Aren't you glad? So we're not talking about sex today. We're talking about crucial conversations. And here's what I want you to understand. Here's the main idea for this morning. We cannot control others, but we can control ourselves. As we talk about self-control, one of the fruit of the Spirit, you need to know you cannot control others, but you can control yourself. In your relationships with people throughout your life, whether at work, whether at home, might be your spouse, might be your neighbors, you ultimately cannot control them, but you can control yourself. And Paul is saying here in Galatians 5 that as a child of God, filled with the Spirit of God, you can have the fruit of of the Spirit in you, and one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Not other control, self-control. You and I go through life, don't we? we? We go through life and we're tempted to think, if I could just control others, if we could just get them to do what we want them to do, then we would be happy. And so we argue, and we fight, and we manipulate, and we push, and we try to intimidate and we wonder why our relationships are such a mess and why we are not so happy. And what we learn here in Galatians 5 is that true happiness comes not by trying to control others, but by learning how to control yourself, self-control. Let's read it, Galatians 5, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. The Apostle Paul writes to the churches in Galatia and to you and me today. He says, 
the fruit of the Spirit, he's just listed the works of the flesh, the porneia, the sexual immorality, all the out-of-control stuff. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Self-control. I saw a quote the other day that said, sometimes the amount of self-control it takes to not say what's on my mind is so exhausting that I need a nap afterwards. Have you been there? I, there, there are two books that I recommend on, on this topic. And the first book is called Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. In her introduction, she highlights the importance of conversations and how really our lives are carried along by the health of our conversations. She makes three key points in her introduction. I just want to quickly highlight. She says, we succeed or fail one conversation at a time. Think about that. Your life, to a large degree, whether it's your marriage, your work, your career, whatever it is, it largely fails or succeeds one conversation at a time. It, your life depends so much on your ability to have healthy conversations with people. She also says the conversation is the relationship. Oftentimes we think, well, here we have our relationship, and then our conversation is just this one little tiny part of it. And she says, really, in a way, the, the conversation is the relationship. She gives an example of a newly married husband and wife, and the husband's getting frustrated because the wife wants to talk so much. And about the same things they just talked about yesterday. And he says, can't we have one huge conversation and get this over with? You know, boy, what a guy, huh? What he doesn't realize is, is that the conversation is the relationship. As goes your conversation, so goes your relationship. She also says we improve our relationships by improving our conversations. She says the good news is, is that you can begin to improve your life right now, today, one conversation at a time. Just start taking your next conversation with whomever it is, whatever it's about, and learn how to become a better conversationalist. Learn how to have crucial conversations, fierce conversations, where you're open and honest, but yet loving and respectful. And when you learn how to have better conversations, you will find your life getting better over time. That's what she says in her book. But the, the primary book that I want to draw on today is called Crucial Conversations. And I know from talking with you that many of you have, have read it or at least referenced that book. And it's, it's written by Carrie Patterson and some others. And, and they say in their book that a crucial conversation has these three elements to it. A crucial conversation is where opinions vary, stakes are high, and emotions run strong. Opinions vary, stakes are high, and emotions run strong. And in fact, I've learned in my own experience that well, sometimes you have opinions vary, and maybe the stakes aren't even that high. But because the opinions vary and the emotions run strong, things can still really go bad. But this is a, this is a crucial conversation. is where opinions vary, stakes are high, and emotions run strong. Like Susan Scott, Carrie Patterson says that your success at work or life depends on how good you are having crucial conversations. Have you had any crucial conversations lately? How did it go? 
Did you say something that you regretted? Is your relationship with that person or that group of people better now than it was before you had that conversation? It's interesting that in Galatians 5, if you look at the the context here of what Paul is saying, he says in verse 15, he he references the fact that there, there were some conversations that were not going that well in these churches in Galatia. He says in chapter 5, verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Have you bitten anybody lately? Have you devoured someone lately? Winston Churchill was the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, and he was known for his clever remarks and even rude remarks. One time he was having this conversation with Nancy Astor, who was a member of the parliament, and and she said to Churchill, she got so frustrated with him, she finally said, Mr. Churchill, if I were your wife, I would poison your coffee. To which Winston Churchill replied, and Mrs. Astor, if I were your husband, I would surely drink it. Very clever, right? Man, I wish I was that clever. So, I mean, clever guy. But, but I doubt that that improved, that conversation improved their relationship. Do you think? I want to share with you some key principles about these two books. To, to help you remember this, I, I've kind of taken what I think is some of the highlights, some of the best of, of both of these books, and I've kind of put them into an acrostic. In fact, if you've read Crucial Conversation, you know that he has a bunch of different acrostics to remember. But I made up my own. I had to put it, put it together here. And it's based on the word lover. L-O-V-E-R. Lover. Everybody say lover. Lover. So if you can remember the word lover. L-O-V-E-R. And remember this, this acrostic here. Okay. L is lead with your heart. O is open with safety. V is vet your story. E is encourage testing, and R is reach an agreement. Okay? Lover. Let's touch on each one of these. The first one, L, in the word lover, L is lead with your heart. Whenever you're in any conversation, especially when you sense it's becoming a crucial conversation, and how do you know? You know it's becoming a crucial conversation when you go, "Uh uh-oh, opinions are varying, and the stakes are getting high here. And, and emotions are running strong here. So what do you do at that moment? You've got to lead with your heart. That is, you look at your heart and you ask yourself, what do I really want? When this conversation is over and we all walk away, what's the win? What do I really hope happens here? What do I want? You lead with your heart. So, for example, let's say this is just an example, and you can edit it to fit your experience. But, but let's say your, your mother has... has passed away recently, and you and your sister are having a conversation about what to do with, with uh, the assets and, and her, the inheritance and all of that, and you say to your sister, hey, sister, we have to sell the summer cottage. We never use it, and we need the cash to pay for my expenses for taking care of mom the past four years, and your sister replies to you, please don't start with the guilt trip. I sent you money every month to help take care of mom. And if I didn't have to travel for my jobs, you know I would have wanted her at my house. Uh Uh-oh, crucial conversation, right? And what what do you do? Maybe instantly the, the hair on your neck rises and your chest gets a little tight and your pulse increases and all of a sudden you realize you're in this crucial conversation. What do you do? What do you say? Our tendency is to get defensive. 
Our tendency is to maybe say something a little smart alecky back. What do you do? You lead with your heart. What do you really want to see happen here? And, and down deep in your heart, you realize that what I really want is for my sister and I to be reconciled and at peace. What I really want is for us to deal with mom's finances in such a way that we're all happy and that we can have a good relationship for many years to come. So at that very moment in this conversation, you have a choice. Do you want to be clever like Winston Churchill? Do you want to try to control her with anger or intimidation or are you going to exercise some self-control? Are you going to lead with your heart and ask yourself, what, I, what do I really want here? Ambrose Bierce, a, a writer back in the 1800s, said, Speak when you are angry, and you will make the best speech you will ever regret. So true. Lead with your heart. Make a choice. You see, at that moment, you are free. We, we sang some songs about being free in Christ, didn't we? Free in the spirit, because that comes right out of Galatians chapter five, where he says several times, you are free, children of God. So you are free at that moment to say whatever you want to say, but you are not free to choose the consequences of what you're about to say. Galatians five, Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So at this very moment, you have to decide, am I going to bite, am I going to devour, or am I going to love? Am I going to be a lover? Am I going to lead with my heart by clarifying what I really want? And so you lead with your heart. Ask yourself, what do you really want? And then, then secondly, and this is the O, so you lead with your heart, L, and then O, you open with safety. If there's any hope for this conversation, you've got to make your sister feel safe. You, you see that your sister's already a bit angry because she thinks, you know, she has a varying opinion with you. And, and she, you know, feels you're trying to make her feel guilty. She's already a bit angry. And you know that your emotions are starting to get strong. So what do you do? Well, you lead with your heart, clarifying what do you really want to see happen here. And then you open with safety. You say, you know, sister, I, I really don't want an argument. I, I, and I don't want you to feel guilty. But I do want to talk about being compensated for shouldering most of the responsibilities over the last few years. The fact is, I paid for most of her bills, and to put it, it put quite a strain on me financially. See, this is called contrasting, where you contrast what you want, what you don't want. And this is one technique that you can use to make the other person feel safe. You contrast what you want and what you don't want. You say, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not saying you're a bad person here, but what I'm saying is that I feel I should be compensated for paying the bills. You see, everybody in this conversation has to feel safe. You have to feel respected. Respect is like air. As long as it's present, nobody's thinking about it. But if you take it away, that's all people can think about. Everybody needs respect and to feel safe. So always be looking for signs in your conversation. Uh-oh, this person is not feeling safe. Maybe their voice is getting tight. 
Maybe, you know, they have some kind of mannerism and you can sense they're just very awkward or uncomfortable. And you've got to say something that will help them feel safe so that the conversation can move on. So you be a lover. You lead with your heart. You open with safety. And then V, you vet your story. You vet your story. Not Corvette, but you vet your story. There are three stories, three dangerous stories here that you need to vet. You need to evaluate. You need to think through and make sure because you and I, we, I don't care how old we are or how mature we think we are. All of us can so easily slip into telling ourselves a story and spinning a story that's really wrong and dangerous and dysfunctional. There's the victim story, the villain story, and the helpless story. Victim, villain, helpless. The victim story says, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. I mean, think about it. If you happen to have a strained marriage right now, I can guarantee you, you were thinking it's primarily the other person's fault. The other person is bad. The other person is wrong. The other person is dumb. And when they do things, it's because they are mean. And when you do something dumb or something wrong, well, you just had a bad day. It was out of character for you. And you see, we make excuses for ourselves. We we make ourselves the victim. It's not my fault. And then the flip side of that is we make them the villain. It's all your fault. We impute bad motives. The reason they said what they did, said what they said or did what they did is because they are bad people. And so we feel justified. In fact, I see a lot of this happening in our politics today where we vilify the other side or somebody who has a varying opinion. Because you see, if I can turn you into a villain, if I can make you seem to be just an evil person, then it justifies my bad behavior. Now I can run around and gossip about you. Because after all, people need to know how bad you are. You see, and we we all can fall into this. I'm the victim. It's not my fault. And you're the villain. It's all your fault. When in fact, I have good and bad in me. You have good and bad in you. And just because you have a varying opinion from me doesn't mean that I'm all good and you're all bad. We oversimplify things to justify ourselves. So you have to resist these dangerous stories. You have to vet your story. And then there's the helpless story. There's nothing nothing else I can do. I had no choice. Just, I'm helpless. What, what else could I do? You know, if I really told my boss what I really think, he would get defensive. He wouldn't listen to me. I might get a demotion. I might get kicked out. I might get fired. I, I can't do anything else. Well, if I didn't yell at my son, he wouldn't listen. I have to yell this way. I have to get angry with him. That seems to be the only thing that motivates him. And so we play this helpless card. And so you and I, we need to vet our stories and make sure that we we need to tie our stories as closely to the facts as possible. Because we all know that you can take a certain set of facts and spin a lot of different stories out of it if you really want to, where the other one is the villain and you are the victim. And you're helpless. So we need to vet our stories. And and it's amazing how we can use these to hurt a relationship and defend ourselves. But then there's the E, encourage testing. So L, lead with your heart. O, open with safety. V, vet your story. And then E, encourage testing. 
Encourage testing. Make sure that your story is tied to the facts and, and it's accurate and it's right. Admit that you probably don't have the, the, all the facts and that there's more to the story than you know. And, and admit that you're the person who has varying opinions for you might have some good points, probably has some good points too. And so you can enter into a dialogue to work on to get the full and complete story. And you're both pouring meaning into your conversation together. You see, you have your story, I have my story, and we think the other's wrong, or at least partly wrong. And so this conversation is about me telling my story and sharing my facts, you telling your story and your facts, and, and, and hopefully we can come to some kind of agreement and improve our relationship. So let's go back to the illustration. So you're speaking to your sister about your mom's cottage, and you've already established some safety by telling her, hey, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I, I just, I really feel I need some compensation for some of the bills that I, that I paid for. And your sister says, what makes you think you did so much more than I did? And you say, it's just that I spent a lot of money taking care of mom. I know you cared about mom too, but I honestly feel like I did more in the day-to-day -day caregiving than you did. And it only seems fair to use some of what she left us to repay a part of what I spent. Do you see it differently? I'd really like to hear. You see, she's, she's stating her facts. She's telling her story. And then she asks questions. Do you see it differently? I really want to hear what you think. So you encourage testing. Maybe your sister had expenses you were not aware of. And your sister says then, okay, fine. Why don't you just send me a bill? And you go, uh-oh. Because it seems like she's agreeing, but really you sense that she's just giving in. Because you sense her tone of voice, the tenseness, the sarcasm, and you realize she's not really agreeing with you. And so you, what do you do? You, you say something like, well, the way you say that, makes it sound like maybe that suggestion is not okay with you. Is there something I'm missing? She says, no. If you feel like you deserve more than I do, you're probably right. You say, well, do you think I'm being unfair, that I'm not acknowledging your contributions? And she says, I didn't know you felt you had an unfair share of the responsibility, and it seems like you're asking for more money is coming out of nowhere. And you say, so you feel like you were doing everything you could to help out, and you're surprised that I feel I should be compensated. She says, well, yes. And you say, you're right. You, you did a lot to help out. And, and I realized that it was expensive to visit as often as you did. And I'm grateful for that. And it, I opted not to pay for professional home health care because mom was more comfortable with me taking care of her. And, and I didn't mind that. On top of that, there were some incidental expenses it doesn't sound like you were aware of. The new medication she was on during the last 18 months was twice as expensive as the old. And the insurance only covered a percentage of her hospital stays. It adds up. And your sister says, so it's these expenses you're worried about covering. Could we go over these expenses to decide on how to cover them? You see, this is how you encourage testing. You ask questions. You open up and you listen. You have your story. Your sister has her story. And, and you learn more about what the real story is. And you're seeking mutual purpose and trying to come to an agreement. 
Proverbs 18:17 says, "In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines." Encourage testing. And if you do it well, then you can reach an agreement. You can actually reach an agreement. So you lead with your heart, you open with safety, you vet your story, you encourage testing, and R, reach an agreement. So in this scenario, you reply to your sister, I've kept a record of all the expenses that went over the amount that both of us agreed to contribute. Can we sit down tomorrow to go over those and talk about what's fair to reimburse me for? And your sister says, okay, we'll talk about the estate and write up a plan for how to divide things up. And you see, it's a win-win. It's a happy ending, right? Because they've they've maintained their relationship, and, and yet they're dealing with the issues and where their opinions had varied previously, they've reached agreement. Now, I know you're sitting there and saying, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but. What, what, what if your sister or whoever it is that you're trying to have this conversation with is just not at all cooperating, and it's becoming very obvious that this is very dysfunctional? Well, remember how we started off, and you remember what I said about forgiveness and reconciliation and boundaries? This is where this all comes together. You cannot control them. You can only control yourself. And so if you're dealing with a situation where it's it's very dysfunctional and try as you may to lead with your heart and open with safety and vet your stories and encourage testing and you're trying to reach an agreement and it's just just not happening because the other side is just, they're, they're just not working with you at all, then you realize I can't control them. I can only control myself. And so I'm going to have to set some boundaries. And what are healthy boundaries? Given given my options here, what are healthy boundaries? Paul says in Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So don't try to control them. You work on self-control. And as you realize you're a child of God, filled with the Spirit of God, and you can enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, And one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You learn over time, Lord, fill me with your fruit. Fill me with your Spirit. Help me through practice, through all these relationships, to be a lover for your honor and your glory. Let's pray.